You likely know the rhyme. Say it with me, everybody. Divorced, beheaded, died. Lucky, beheaded, survived. I have a lot of problems with that rhyme. What? Isn't that the rhyme? Isn't that how it goes? (laughs) First of all, no. The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome back to the show. I am your host, Rebecca Larson, and today I am joined by my wonderful co-host, Heather Darcy. Hey, Heather. Hey, Happy New Year. Oh, Happy New Year to you. Isn't 2023 exciting already? Yes, so, okay, we're kind of going to revisit this one again because we just need to get the truth out about Anne of Cleves and we're just going to beat it, just beat it to death. You likely know the rhyme. Say it with me, everybody. Divorced, beheaded, died. Lucky, beheaded, survived. I have a lot of problems with that rhyme. What? Isn't that the rhyme? Isn't that how it goes? <laughs> First of all, no. Secondly, nobody got divorced. Thirdly, Anna was not lucky. Okay, so now we have to revisit this rhyme because this is the biggest thing. When people are first introduced to the Tudors, they know this. Mm -hmm. I think they're probably taught this at school in England as well. Probably. That would be my guess if they're teaching. Yeah. For young kids, at least, to remember them. Anyway, I digress. (laughs) So you said he didn't divorce any of his wives. So let's revisit wife number one. He had an annulment, which is what made Mary illegitimate. So the the marriage never happened. Exactly. Yep. Why is that so hard for us to admit? We still talk about it, right? Like it's a marriage. It lasted over 20 years. It's so hard to go from, yeah, they were married for 20 some years to nope, it never happened. Never didn't exist. (laughs) Well, and it doesn't rhyme very well. Annulled beheaded died annulled beheaded survived just doesn't have the same ring maybe with an accent it would sound better (laughs) maybe yes i've got this delightful midwestern flat tone um the other thing too is i know people so when henry died the only legal wife that he had or the only actual wife in a legal sense who predeceased him was jane because catherine wasn't his wife when she died Anne wasn't his wife when she died Anna was still alive and Catherine Howard wasn't his wife when she died. All those marriages were annulled. Oh my gosh. Yes. I was just going to yeah. say, but Anne, Anne Bullitt, no, it was annulled. Mm-hmm. I totally... So the only two wives he technically had were Jane Seymour and Catherine Parr. Annulled, annulled, died. Annulled, annulled, survived. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? No, it doesn't work as well. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why they did it this way. So he was never legally married to Catherine of Aragon. 
or Anne of Cleves. Correct. Or Anne Boleyn or Catherine Howard. Right. Wow. Yeah. You okay. had all those marriages. Well, my, my head is swimming. I thought I knew this, but now I'm all confused. <laughs> I'm fine. It's all right. I'm here to mess you up. <laughs> I think, yes, thank <laughs> you. Thank you. Okay. So let's go back to the funny lucky. Why does everybody say Anne of Cleves is lucky? Because that's probably the most common thing you see on social media. She's the lucky wife. Why do they say that? I don't know. So th- usually when she's described as lucky, it's in the context of she kept her head. You know, she didn't get her head chopped off. He didn't behead her. I don't know why people think she was in danger of that. Other than it's just an easy thing to say, oh, Anna was lucky because, and you and I've talked about this before, but I'm just apparently again, like just super passionate about this. But the only people that Henry beheaded were his subjects, Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard. And also when we look at the timing of things, he of course did that after the Reformation. So he took back full legal control from the church in Rome so he could do whatever he wanted, including behead people, whoever he wanted for whatever reason. I mean, there had to be laws in place, but. Right. And that's why he gets the reputation of he could have beheaded all of his wives. He did one. Why couldn't he do number four too? Right. Yes. And, but Anne Boleyn did some foolish things that put her in a position to be a target. I don't think that she deserved to die. I don't know that anyone actually thinks that. And I think that she was basically murdered. But aside from that, she did things that were silly. Catherine Howard, again, victim of the times, did silly things. I'm not saying either of them deserved it. I'm just saying that for for the time period in which they lived and for their status, they did things that got themselves into a position where they could be felled by the law. We'll put it that way. And again, they were Henry's subjects. When we look at Catherine of Aragon, She's a woman from Spain. She's a princess of Spain. I, right. She wasn't in danger of it. And we look at Anna. She was a subject of the Holy Roman Emperor. So if Henry would have beheaded her, that would have been a major international incident. It would have just been, oh, Henry killed somebody. Right. Whatever. What a shame. It, it would have been yeah. a, a pretty big deal. And in theory, because she was a subject not only of her brother and Julius Kleifeberg and Julius Kleifeberg, she was a subject of the Holy Roman Empire. So Charles V would have a reason to attack England if mm-hmm. he felt like it. I don't know that he would go that far, but he could have. And so when people just flippantly say, oh, she was lucky she kept her head. Well, she wasn't in danger of losing it in the first place. So why do we keep saying that? It almost does a disservice to her memory. You know, I think so. And that's probably why it, it gets under my skin so much. She she. The more important part, it's not so much that she, quote unquote, kept her head. It's that she maintained her dignity as best she could. She gave responses to Henry that he found sufficiently pleasing. She was respectful of him and he rewarded her in kind with taking care of her for the rest of his life. Of course, things got a little shoddy under his son, but he she kept her dignity as best she could in this situation. And he in return took care of her. So I think it's more. I think it would be better to almost reframe it that way that Anna kept her dignity, not that she kept her head and she wasn't lucky. She was clever. It's fantastic quotes from you right there. That was, (laughs) but it's true though. It's so true. It's just, and I think that when we talk about somebody being lucky, I mean, you completely remove that person's individual agency. Mm. And I don't think that Henry's six wives 
with maybe the exception of Catherine Howard, because she was just young and put very, very vulnerable and put in an extremely vulnerable position. I don't think any of them were lucky or unlucky. I think that a lot that they all had agency. I mean, Catherine of Aragon probably had the most agency, which is why she was able to fight Henry in the annulment for so long. And so when we say that they're lucky or they're this or they're that, we're removing their uh, a segment of their humanity almost. And I'm getting very passionate about this, but that's what I think, because what Anna was clever. She was smart. She knew how to how to protect herself in a really difficult situation in a foreign country. She She wasn't just some foolish young girl or foolish person, we'll say foolish person, who got herself into a bad situation. Anne Boleyn got herself into and out of her situations using her own agency. And yes, we can argue about her father positioning her at court and this, that, and the other. And I don't necessarily disagree with those, just the extent to which her father was involved. But again, Anne Boleyn used her own agency. Jane Seymour, to an extent, had to use her agency to hook Henry. I mean, they all they all kind of did that. Maybe Catherine Parr didn't on purpose, but she <laughs> definitely had to use her agency later on when she was accused of of being a heretic, basically, right. to protect herself. So I think that's what also bothers me about hearing that Anna was the lucky one or that she kept her head is it's no, that's not really what happened. Okay, so I have to go back to something you said a little bit ago because it grabbed my attention and I hadn't connected these dots before until you said it, was that Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, was a threat to England both times when he wanted to divorce Catherine and Anna. Yeah, the entire time. Wow. And then Henry turns around and gets all buddy-buddy with Charles after after. The annulment from Anna, I mean, it took a year and a couple of years for that to happen. But yeah, these would have been major international incidents with the Holy Roman Emperor who had one heck of a navy. I mean, Henry's daughter, of course, defeated that navy long after all of them died. But it was still a real possibility. Yeah. I mean, let's keep in mind when Anna moved to England that Henry was building up fortifications on the East Coast at Dover and a couple other places. So it would have been very bad. Interesting. And you mentioned that she made some really good choices and that helped her to get the end result that she got. She obviously, um, I don't want to say she ended up wealthy, but she was comfortable when she became the the king's beloved sister. What What do you see as maybe the most positive thing that she could have done for herself that she did do? Well, just that she politely acquiesced. Because I think that she, again, and this bit's speculation, right? Because nobody was actually there to see what happened. And we don't know what would have happened if, if Anna would have fought things. We have no way of knowing that. It could have been that Henry would have just booted her out of the country right away. And she could have gone back to Cleves in shame. Or if not in shame, she would have at least been subjected to her brother's whims. Or not. We don't really, well... There's more on her brother's whims in the new book. Ooh. So yes, she would have been subjected to her brother's whims, I believe. But we don't know the bad the bad end of things. But she acquiesced. She was polite. She was respectful. She appeared to be respectful towards Catherine Howard, even if it was her more so throwing shade, which I think you and I have talked about a lot, just her <laughs> bowing before this, this young lady who took who stole Anna's husband and perhaps embarrassing Catherine a little bit. But anyway, yeah, I I think that I believe I lost sight of the question, but ultimately I think that it was her 
having a good head on her shoulders, realizing the situation that she was in, probably recognizing that she was alone. I mean, she still had some counselors there, but they couldn't do anything. They didn't have any power. And perhaps her long game was, hey, I'll agree with Henry right now. And then he'll get some proof that the marriage is fine because I know in my heart and I know Mm -hmm. that that God believes that this is fine and right in the eyes of God because they were religious back then. And maybe she thought he'd come back if she were polite to him. But whatever it was that motivated her to react the way she did, she did it, I think, the best way possible. I don't know how she could have done it poorly. Now, she threw little temper tantrums and fits here and there afterwards, especially with uh, Mr. Carew, who was reading all of her letters. So she didn't have an ideal life in England, but she did handle it, I think, as best she could have. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Can we talk about her first meeting with Henry VIII? Because I think there was just an anniversary of that that came up recently. Yes. Okay. Yes. And I know we've done this in other episodes, but there might be people listening who have never listened to the show before. So let's talk about the myth or the the perception that Henry arrived. She didn't know who he was. It was a bad first meeting. What what happened, really? We have to keep in mind that the English account, which is pretty much every publication up until Anna Duchess of Cleves, King's beloved sister came out in 2019, where I went and dug through German sources and so on and so forth, has been written from documents that were collected for the annulment proceeding. So these were written in June and July of 1540. And these were specifically to give reasons for Henry to get his annulment. So we have to question how true are these documents? And as you know, that's, that's, a big chunk of my of my book about Anna. But so the account of their unfortunate first meeting in the English record doesn't show up until the annulment proceedings. <laughs> That's very convenient that right. she rejected him right away, because then that shows that he wasn't attracted to her. It wasn't a good match or, or something like that. But in the German account, which was written a few days after I believe it was after the wedding. So they got married on January 6th and he met her on uh, New Year's Eve, but, or New Year's Day. I'm kind of confused right now. Anyway, um, in the German account, he came, he was in disguise, but she either figured out who he was or he, or it was somehow made known to her. Mm-hmm. That's not really said in in the German account, but she's in Rochester Castle and I've been to the castle and the room that they were in, it was this, this, it was just a big square room. And then kind of on the outside is a walkway or I'm tr- not a walk. So almost like a hall that went all the way around with arches and then there were windows. So she was looking out one of these windows and there would have been a partition in the middle of the big square room. There were two separate fireplaces and she would have been on one side with her higher ranking ladies. And then the men and the lower ranking people would have been on the other side of this room. And so Henry and his men come up and she's at a window. So she probably would have been brought away from the window, just looking at how this room is structured. So it wasn't like he came up and she suddenly turned around and saw this dude. She would have probably, he would have actually had to approach her at the window with how this building was constructed, or she would have had to have been brought 
from the window to the room, greeted however they greeted each other, whether or not she recognized him, who knows, but if she's looking for a guy with red hair and a red beard, who's about 48 years old and overweight, (laughs) she could probably figure out who it was. I don't know for sure, but she could probably figure it out. The likelihood and very tall. And very tall. Yes, he was very tall. So she probably, I would be surprised if she didn't know this basic information about her husband from having been in Calais because she was probably asking questions about him while she was there. Yeah, I was going to say, did she know he had this habit of dressing up? I have no idea. I don't know. That's interesting. But yeah, but he's tall. He's portly. He's about 50 years old and he has red hair. (laughs) What more do you need? Right. So however, however it gets sorted, they sort it out and he brings her. There's nothing that says that he brought her first. Okay. That's only in the English account. Now it is possible that he brought furs and then turned around and didn't, and you know, said to his, whoever was carrying the furs, I don't like her take those away but we do know that he gave her a crystal goblet that had a gold lid and foot with rubies and pearls on it and also a chain necklace with rubies and pearls on it so i don't know why he would send away the furs but give her the really expensive stuff he wanted her to look nice but not be warm yeah in the (laughs) winter the damp winter (laughs) welcome to england i hope you're cold maybe he was thinking about the honeymoon (laughs) Anyway, it's good to have gold. So that, Um, yeah, I mean, that to me, that's one of the other big myths or misconceptions about her is that first meeting. And there's more. He actually stayed and had dinner with her that night. And then he stayed somewhere else, not far from the castle. It doesn't really say. But when you go to Rochester and you're in the castle, the cathedral there is pretty much right across the street. So he could have stayed there. I don't know. I don't know where he stayed, but it is possible he could have stayed there or there were other buildings around where he could have stayed. But he stayed far enough away from her to protect her reputation and her dignity. Yeah. So I don't know that he stayed at that church. But if I'm there as Heather, I went there in January of 2022 and I'm looking and oh, well, that kind of makes sense. But that's a possibility of somewhere he could have stayed. And then he got up and he had breakfast with her the next morning. Yeah, why would he do that if he didn't like her? And then they had their formal meeting on the Blackheath shortly after that. And I went to the area where Anna and Henry met this last, I was in England in December as well. I was catching up on a lot of things last year. Anyway, and I saw the gate or approximately where the gate would have been that Henry would have ridden out of from the Greenwich Palace grounds and where he would have met. Anna, again, I don't know the exact spot because it just gives us description of like Shooter's Hill and, and things like that. So I have mm-hmm. a rough idea of where it was. But this is a pretty small area. So he rode out. He met her. They they had their formal public first meeting, I guess you could say. That went well. So I just have I, I don't know that the German account is entirely true in the sense that maybe it's a little bit too rosy. But I have serious issues with the English account because of the reason for which it was written. Right. Right. And the truth is somewhere in the middle, probably. It is. Yeah. Maybe a little more on the German side. (laughs) Well, and I read somewhere and again, don't quote me on this one because I feel like I read this somewhere and I haven't been able to find it again. And I've been reading and researching Anna for well over 10 years now. But I thought I read somewhere at one point, again, don't quote me, that it was customary to kiss on the lips in greeting in England but that would have never happened to Anna in Germany. 
So Henry might have kissed her on the lips in greeting and that might have freaked her out. I don't know. I don't know that that's for sure anything that happened, but I've that was heard that. But did I hear that from you? <laughs> like, I think who I've knows? Heard so we've been before. talking about her for a long time. <laughs> who told me that? Oh, it was you. <laughs> Probably me. <laughs> if I ever do find that source, though, I'll, I'll write an article and toss it up on, on my website. But yeah, that'd be great. And plug, so plug your website quick. Oh, yes. Maidensandmanuscripts.com. Check it out. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't update it as much as I would have liked to last year, probably because I basically finished three books in a year because that's what sane people do <laughs> and worked full time. <laughs> um, I don't recommend my lifestyle to anybody. But moving on, um, I'm hoping to have more updates. And I know that I, I should be doing a virtual book tour when Children of the House of Cleves comes out. And I always wind up reposting my articles on my website, too. So if you miss a blog post, stop. You can always go to my website later in the year and awesome. all that good stuff will be there. But One of the, I want to talk about same topic, obviously, and of Cleves. But you mentioned the jewelry that Henry gave her and, and quickly mentioned the furs as well. I think our idea of what Anne of Cleves looked like is based off of portraits that make her look heavily German. How, how soon, because we know she adapted, but how soon after she arrived in England did she start transitioning into the more English fashion, maybe? She preferred French fashion. Oh. But that was within, I'd say within a month. I mean, she she wore a German or I guess they said Dutch, but German style wedding dress because of course she did. She she's from Germany and she wanted to come with her wedding dress to get married because she's supposed to get married immediately when she got there. Like originally they were supposed to get married at Canterbury Cathedral, but then there are all these delays in the weather and whatever. And then the, so they got married at Greenwich Palace instead. But of course she brought a German dress. Of course she brought German clothes from Germany. Why? Why wouldn't she bring her clothes? Like what was she supposed to wear? But she did assimilate pretty quickly. She we don't know the exact date that she necessarily started wearing French clothes, but it appears to have been within the month. And certainly by the spring she was wearing oh. or excuse me, French French clothes. Certainly by the spring she wore French clothes, whether or not she was wearing her German clothes as well here and there. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me, but we don't know. This is going to sound silly. I think she favored hats. I think she really liked to wear hats. And because she's wearing a hat and the Rosenbach portrait that's on the cover of, of Anna Duchess of Cleves. That, of course, was, I'm going to say the word, mm, hidden. It wasn't lost because it's not proper to say that something's lost when it's in a museum, right? It's just hidden. But it was hidden for a few years. And I Hopefully the Rosenbach Museum and I hooked up and figured out where, where it was. And now it's on. That's that's the nice portrait of her, like a three quarter angle portrait. That's on the cover. She's wearing a hat. It and looks first, like a pizza hat. That's the only way I can describe it. Nice. Yes, it's with pearls. It's brilliant. Yes. And she's when she has her formal meeting with Henry. At the Blackheath, she's wearing German dress, but she's described as wearing a hat embroidered with Orient Pearl. I'm going to guess it's the one that she's wearing in the Rosenbeck portrait because I don't know how many hats embroidered with Orient pearls she had, but maybe she had two. Maybe. So she's wearing a hat there. There is a Holbein, was it? Wenceslas Haller uh, engraving after a Holbein portrait. And it's when you look in the on a Duchess of Cleves book. It's one of the engravings in the front of the book. So it's not in the pictures in the middle, it's in the front. And it's a profile of her. 
but she's wearing a hat. So I think she liked hats. I, I wonder, too, was that the fashion in Germany? Or you know, I don't never know what to call where she came from. No, you can call it Germany. The bulk of. To go on a bit of a tangent, the bulk of where she lived is in modern day Germany, but there's also a substantial amount like Gelders. That's my understanding is it's mostly in the Netherlands. Okay. So there was a chunk of their current of their old territories are in modern day Netherlands. So that is fair. And her father's dialect had a much heavier Dutch influence and her mother sounded more, let's call it traditionally German or what we would expect the German language to be like. So what I know of Germany, would this have been modern day Northwestern Germany? North Rhine Westphalia. Okay. My family comes from Emsland. I'm not sure where that is. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know either. <laughs> I'll consult a map. And I'll then have to look we'll at a map. But it. I know it's generally Focus Northwest <laughs> Germany where they come. I just know like, anyway, I, whatever. I'm going on a tangent about. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. Yeah. So it's it's kind of, it's kind of, it's in the central bit, but it's definitely on the Western edge. It is bordered by the Netherlands. Interesting. So do we know was wearing hats the fashion at the time? Is that maybe why she enjoyed wearing them? It appears that way. There is an image in my new book that depicts the fashions in Cleves at while she was younger, or at least before she moved to England. And I believe one of them is wearing a hat and there's, there might be another portrait of her family members wearing a hat. I'm trying to think, but I, I believe that that was part of the fashion because she would have her hair covered. Like we see in the Rosenbach portrait, they had their, their mm-hmm. hair covered once they became a certain age and some sort of headdress. So there's either the one that you see in the Hans Holbein portrait, either the miniature or the, the big one that's in the Louvre or the hat that she's wearing in the Rosenbach. So yes, I do think that it was the fashion as far as I can tell. I'm not a fashion historian, but I do think that was the fashion and I think she liked it. <laughs> so they probably didn't have the French hoods like the English court was used to at that point. No, German women were pretty well covered and, um, especially married women. And as the Lutheran Reformation wore on, they, the fashion became more conservative in some ways in like Saxony. So if we go to, if we're in the United Duchies of Julie Kleifeberg, Juliers, Klevesberg, the women over a certain age, and I don't know at what point this happened, but they had high necked shirts. Hmm. And they had these big billowing sleeves, like what we see in the the Hans Holbein portrait. They had belts that cinched in their waist. So you could see you could see their figure in the sense that you could tell that they had a bosom. You could see their waist. And then they had kind of bell-shaped skirts. I'm not using the proper phrases for all of these articles of clothing, because frankly, I don't know what they are. But that should give you a sense of it. But then if we look at the Saxon fashions that her elder sister Zabilla wore, big excuse me, big, thick gold chains, the really wild, tight sleeves. Like when we think of really weird German fashion from the 16th century, you're thinking of Saxony. Now, the lower echelons of women would wear all black and they would wear this white kind of hood that covered their hair. And they would also wear this chin strap that actually it would either go under their chin to just below their lower lips. So you could see the lips or it actually cover their lips. And there's a portrait I think it's the Weimar Reformation altarpiece by Lucas Cranach the Elder. And there's a, a bit of this in the in the new book. But on the right hand of the viewer, 
on that wing where it shows Martin Luther preaching to a crowd of people. It has his wife in there, but most importantly, there's women. And you can see the women fully dressed wearing this this headpiece that I'm describing that's covering the lower half of their face. Mm -hmm. And then there's other women. I think one of them is his is Martin Luther's wife, Katarina von Boa, with the lappets hanging down so you can see the chin. Yeah. So if you're looking at portraiture, and that's actually where none outfits came from, was a Dutch version of that. Oh, and you know, the first person that came into mind when you were describing that to me was I feel like Louise of Savoy. I want to say there's a portrait of her that looks like that. There might be. Yeah. And I don't know if some of that translated into widow's weeds. I'm not sure. But um, if you see in general, if you see a portrait in around the 16th century, maybe even the late 15th century of a woman from a Germanic territory. So by Germanic, I mean, Dutch, Swiss, Germany, possibly parts of Poland and um, modern day uh, Czech Republic. And she's wearing this white headdress that has her hair covered. And there's these white lappets hanging down. That's that you can see her whole face. Oh. Because if she were out in public, she would have actually used that to cover the bottom, her bottom jaw, basically. Interesting. So to answer your question, they did not really do the French hoods. They thought that the English court was extremely debauched between how drunk they got and also how much flesh they flashed about. <laughs> They were the naughty continent or island. They're not a continent. They the, the island of the naughties. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Well, you're talking about the clothing and I'm picturing these portraits of Anne of Cleves and her sisters that I've seen. And I'm wondering in your research, have you ever looked into what the weather was like? Because that's always something that I've been so interested in and have not been able to find the right place to go where I'll get the truth about what the climate was like at the time. Kind of. So tell me what you my, know. My favorite source for the first 20 years of the 16th century is a regional chronicle um, about the city of Duisburg written by Johann Wassenberg. And I, that's where I found on his true date of birth. And a few other things, but part of what he talks about in there are these crazy weather events. So it did snow there. There were times when the Rhine would freeze and you could walk across it. But there were also extreme weather events where there would be huge floods or there, there was one. I haven't looked at this in a while, so I might have the details slightly off, but I believe I have it correctly stated in Children of the House of Cleves. But for example, there was a huge snowstorm or it was really, really cold and the river Rhine was frozen. And that was the main artery in that part of the world. And also where all the main cities in Jülich Kleiferberg, they were all situated on the Rhine or on tributaries to the Rhine. And then there's a big thaw. So then all this ice comes down and, you know, it blocks things and there's a huge flood. So there was that. It seems like it was temperate. I don't really see a whole lot that I can recall about the weather being too hot. So it seems like it was temperate or cooler. And I think, again, don't quote me on this. I believe that the the little ice age, have you, are you familiar with that? Yeah, I thought I had heard that that happened during Henry VII's reign. I think it extended for a long period, though. OK, I don't think it was a brief thing. That's possible. I just only remember hearing it that it was during his reign, which would explain a lot of things, especially well, the clothing. Yeah, all the heavy clothes. But so I, I'd have to double check the exact years. 
I'm, I'm so fascinated by understanding the weather because really the weather affects so much. There's, I mean, even today when we think, you know, we live in the Midwest and we have a major blizzard, it stops us in our tracks or it knocks out electricity for us. But imagine if you lived on this island, um, right. maybe where they're not normally, at least in modern day, used to snowstorms or any big snow accumulation and all of a sudden the weather has changed and you're getting snow or really cold temperatures. I can't even imagine how that would affect your life. So apparently, after briefly consulting the Internet, and if somebody needs to correct me, I, I'm fine with being corrected on this. But the Little Ice Age went on from the 1500s up into the 1800s. Whoa. Yeah. So that's the whole Tudor period. No way. And Mm-hmm. Well, now I need to go down that rabbit hole and find out more about that because that's fascinating. Yeah. And so and I don't know how far it extended into right. into Europe or what the impact would have been. Somebody, if you know, please leave a good comment. But I believe that's why they wore all that heavy clothing, because there's no way. I mean, heck, England got into what, the 90s? Uh, Fahrenheit over the summer this year right. you can't wear that kind of stuff no and it it got hot like that in Germany too I mean we have a very different climactic yeah climactic that's is that the right phrase climate situation I don't know if climactic is the right word climate situation now than we did even you know 20 30 years ago right but still if it got into even like 75 or 80 can you imagine wearing all that stuff outside well see I think that's why sometimes it's easy to forget that it could have been cold because we see them in the layers and then so often it's just attributed to well they had to wear layers because they had their linen underneath and they had to change that outset because they were sweating and they wanted to be clean and they that's where my head goes right away is like that's it's almost like how their dress is described always has to do with them sweating and having to remove layers and I don't associate sweating and cold <laughs> yeah that's true I think though it more has to do with how often people wash their clothes because it's easier to wash a linen undergarment than it is to wash your big heavy velvet or silk that's true garment and so i don't know that i mean it's like wearing an undershirt under your dress shirt or a slip under your dress today to try and keep your clothes not just lying nicely but also extend the wearing of them especially if it's something that you go get dry cleaned so I would agree in part with what you're saying, but I think the other part was just kind of a hygiene factor because it was easier to clean a thin linen garment than it was to clean the heavy outer garment or heavy clothing pieces that we see in portraits. Now I feel like I need a whole episode on how to clean their gowns. Maybe we do. <laughs> if there's anybody out there. The whole pro How did it work? I really want to know this now. And there's a really good book. I'm going to see if I can find it real quick to recommend to people, but it talks about how they cleaned how the tutors clean their bodies. I, Give me just I think I read it in Ruth Goodman's book one time. Yes. About rubbing yes. your skin with linen yes. repeatedly. And, yes. And she did it and it worked. Yes. Yeah. That and, book was fascinating. Yes. What is it? What how is to, it every day? How to become a tutor. Okay. Yes. Everyone should read that book because it's full of practical information and it and it makes sense. I found yeah. with history. We don't ever really know what happened, but I'm going to go with the more sensible thing. Right. Because humans do do outrageous things, but usually on their face, they're outrageous. Um, 
but with people in certain positions, like, you know, kings of a country, a king of a country, there's probably an underlying logical explanation for what they did and that's, or why they did the thing that they did. Not that it makes it right, but you, you can kind of follow the breadcrumbs and see, oh yeah, okay, well, that's why they did that. I think that that was very bad of them, but okay, that kind of makes sense as opposed to, right. oh, this person just went off the deep end and, and became a maniacal megalomaniac. Right. Not that that didn't happen, but there was usually more evidence. Exactly. I'm, I'm glad that you said that because I think this is one of the things, and I don't want to talk too much about this, but one of the things the modern monarchy has taught me that these are real people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know we all know that, but I'm just going to reiterate this. They are real people with a real sense of duty mm-hmm. and they will take that duty to the extreme to yes. protect what's theirs or yes. what history has preserved for them. They want to keep it going. And obviously I, I love the Royal family. So <laughs> yes, but it helps you to understand that, hey, when Henry VIII made some choices he made, some of it was just to protect his image and the image of his monarchy. Well, and his throne. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's very easy in the 21st century to sit there and say all these nasty things about people that lived hundreds of years ago. But we really don't know. Right. We, I mean, we get anecdotes, but we really don't know. So... Again, though, like I said, in my opinion, usually the most logical explanation is probably what happened. Yeah. We don't really have a way of knowing, though. One of the things that we really didn't know that we thought we knew that you mentioned was Anne of Cleves' birth date. Yeah. Okay, we have to talk about this. And I know I'm going to say it again. I know we always talk about this, but I really think it's so important to get this message out there as well. Not only was she not lucky, quote unquote, she was smart. But she wasn't born when we thought she was. So what's the date we've been told all along? And then how did you discover her actual birthday? So it's the the date that we've been told is September 22nd, I think, of 1515. And I started to dig into that. The reason being, I was mentioning that that chronicle that I really, really found to be a good source. That gives her date of birth as June 28th of 1515. And this was something that was written when Anna was alive or when she was born. So I'm going to give that a heck of a lot of credence. On top of that, when I tried to trace back a source for the September date, I went to who was the lady that, excuse me, Strickland, is she the one that wrote in the 19th century? Yeah, Agnes Strickland. She never really gave a good source for her dates. And I went back to some of the sources that she did use. And the family trees were either entirely factually wrong or they omitted one of her sisters or something like that. And the only thing I can think of that I came across, I don't believe I put this in my second book, but maybe there's still time. Anyway, there were in the 19th century, there was a group of historians who were documenting the history of Berg, of the Berg, the former Duchy of Berg, right? And so they wrote these uh i'm thinking of how to translate it into english that's why i'm pausing magazine of the history union of berg okay so these so, historians got together maybe like an archaeological mu- magazine modern day yeah or just a history magazine right yeah there you go yeah and b- but there was this other dude at the same time who I don't think he was a qualified historian. I'm not bashing anyone who isn't, but this guy was not part of this 
history union or this collection of historians. And I believe that he actually wrote down her what could have been her baptismal date. Oh, well, that would make more sense then. Yes. And I think that that's where the September date comes from. But then my question question is, was she sick as an infant? Because that seems like a decent chunk of time between birth and baptism. I don't think Wilhelm got baptized, her brother, until about a month and a half after he was born. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, let me. When I think of even the 15th century, it always seemed such an urgency when a child was born to get them immediately baptized. So I guess. Well, in English culture, though, right? Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. So Wilhelm was born on the 27th or 28th or 27th going into 28th of July, 1516. And he wasn't baptized until September 1st of 1516. They were both born in July and they're both baptized in September. She was born in late June. Oh. The elder sister, Zabilla, was born in July of 1512. Okay. Wilhelm was born in so the, so another thing that we see so I'm going to go back to the question about Anna's birth date when we read a lot of German sources were destroyed during World War II either they were lost to the sands of time or they were just destroyed during the war there's there's no way to get around it so a lot of sources that we have were preserved by this German or this Bergish history union okay and they pointed out that there was like a birthday season for the Fundamox because you have Anna's birthday in June. And I saw some dates that gave like an early July date. So she was born, I'm going to say somewhere between, let's say, June 25th and July 12th. July 12th is the latest date that I've seen. June 28th is the earliest, and that's the one that the primary source has. But we'll we'll give it that range. So you have Anna born in late June. You have uh, Zabilla and her brother Wilhelm born in July. Their mother was born in early August. Wow. The little sister was born in October. And I don't remember when Johan was born, to be honest. I was say they were but, all summer babies. Yeah, a lot of summer babies. But and this is the fun part, too. So Henry was also born on June 28th of 1491. And he was exactly twice her age when they got married. He was 48 and she was 24. That's crazy. Also, I think, again, we have no way of knowing this, but I think that part of the reason why she was so cool with, oh, yeah, we'll just go down to the Palace of Richmond in late June. I could just see him being like, hey, Anna, why don't you go down to Richmond? I'll join you there in a few days and we can celebrate our birthdays together. Uh-huh. I don't know if they actually did that back then, but maybe that's what he said. <laughs> maybe. My He's mind is true. just spinning right now. Like you just unloaded so much on me and I feel like I have so many questions and... I'm not going to be able to ask them all here. Why, why don't I come back in the spring and we can talk about it? Um, why don't you come back next week? And then <laughs> just <kidding>. okay. <laughs> I'm around. <laughs> why, why do you, why do you think it took so long for not only her birth date, but all of this information in the German archives? Why did it take so long for this to come out? Quite frankly, I think it's because of World War II. When I talk to a lot of my fellow Americans and we th- when we think about a lot of national sentiment towards the Germans, there were some horrendous things that happened in World War II. And there were also some very bad things that happened in World War I. And I think that because of those atrocious events and those heartrending events and those mm. terrible events, I think that sometimes memory or thoughts about Germany stop there. 
And also when we talk about Germany, the Germany that exists today did not exist until the 1870s. So we're really looking at the Holy Roman Empire. But I, I really, really think that part of the problem is that we just forget that there was a whole different world before the, the 19th and the 20th centuries. And there's very extremely good reasons to remember what happened surrounding World War II mm-hmm. and the Holocaust. But we also have to remember that there's more to to a people's history than that short time span. I think too, for Americans, we have a difficult time thinking back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years because our country is so young. I mean, any the earliest iteration of white people coming to America that's really documented is the early 17th century. I mean, I guess you have Roanoke in the 1580s. I believe it was the 1580s, maybe it was 1570s, but like a permanent establishment like Jamestown, I don't think that was until like 1604 or something like that. And then our country wasn't solidified or founded until the 1770s. Mm-hmm. So for Americans, we don't really have all these things to fixate on because it's like, oh, nothing happened before, you know, 1700, right. before 1600. And then... um I think for other Western countries, maybe there was just kind of a a lot of bad things happened. And unfortunately, yeah. you, that has to be laying at Germany's feet. And thankfully, that's not the case anymore. And um, but but to answer your question, I think that's why I, I think that there was just no desire to go and find out. Heather, thank you so much for coming on today and talking to all of us about Anne of Cleves again. Uh, I want you to end the show with what is one thing about Anne of Cleves that you find? I'm going to throw. I'm really going to give you a tough one here. Okay. Quirky. I've got something for you. All right. She and her sister Zabilla might have had weird toes. What? Yes. Okay. Tell, a, tell me more. Okay. There's a whole chapter about this in Children of the House of Cleves. It's not <laughs> like I'm plugging my new book or anything. But anyway, there was a person who said that both Sibylla and Anna had like funky big toes. And there's a reason why this person said this, but Anna might have had funky toes. And apparently that was known in their family that Anna and, and Zabilla, the older sister, had funky toes. Maybe their mother had funky toes. Amalia apparently did not have funky toes, the younger sister, because nobody, I don't mean funky like stinky, I mean like funky like weird. I can't stop laughing because you're just saying funky toes over and over. (laughs) (laughs) So that is the most interesting piece of information from any guests I have ever received. And I thank you so much for that answer on Anne of Cleve. Heather Darcy. Thank you so much for coming on. We'll have you again soon. Anytime. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.